Welcome to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm Paige Donner, the host and producer. This food and wine show is being brought to you directly from Paris, France. Here, we give you a taste of this delicious world with all its colorful and diverse personalities that make up the Paris culinary landscape. So, sit back and relax and enjoy Paris good food and wine. For our October show of Paris Good Food and Wine, we get the down and dirty of Paris. Namely, we hear about the genesis of Paris's first tiki bar, Dirty Dick. Hi, uh, are you going to hold it? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, my name's Scott Shooter, uh, the owner of Dirty Dick. I moved here in 1998. Yes, he's talking about the mic there. Scott Shooter is the owner of Dirty Dick Tiki Bar in Pagal and his 19 and a half years in Paris, during which he raised his son here, taught him a lot about the city's bar scene and where to go to find the best Michelin star restaurants in France. Next, we'll be hearing from the original French basher, Stephen Clark, whose runaway success with his marriage books, the first one being a year in the marriage, gave this writer the green light to live the life many of us dream of, namely, a novelist in France who spends his days writing and the rest of his time exploring the finer things of life. He'll explain to us how merde is not necessarily a pejorative word in French. You have to understand that merde means shit, but in France it's a very rich word. It can also be a good thing. Merde is what actors say to each other before they go on stage, it's like break a leg. And he'll also give us a tip about where to find the best lunch restaurants in the City of Light. So, sit back and relax as you listen to another deliciously informative episode of Paris, Good Food and Wine. Paris Good Food and Wine is generously brought to you by Paris Food and Wine. Thank you for listening to Paris Good Food and Wine. If you'd like to support our show, you can find our Paris Food and Wine shop at parisfoodandwine.net. That's parisfoodandwine.net. I don't think that there can be a better setting to interview Scott Shooter who's the owner of Dirty Dick Bar, the tiki bar in Paris, then in the shadows of the Pantheon, which is a landmark here in Paris devoted to great men, the grands hommes. Because honestly, in the world of, uh, of bars and cocktails and this whole you know huge cocktail trend that has swept Paris in the last years, you are one of les grands hommes. So Scott, can you just tell us a little bit about how you came to open up your quintessential tiki bar, Dirty Dick? Hi, uh, are you gonna hold it? Uh, so, yeah, my name's Scott Shooter, uh, the owner of Dirty Dick. I moved here in 1998, actually, to have my son. I uh, moved here during the World Cup. I started barbacking. It was one of the first jobs I could get. Even Glass Boy, I wasn't even barbacking. I was just picking up, like, doing all the glassware and everything in the bar. Uh, moved up to, in the 6 iron discipline, running a pub. 
it was an English pub like we're in now actually. It's called the Maze, it's still there. I was running that for a while. That's where I first started making cocktails and stuff, but then um, later, basically been bartending, you know, about 18 years now. Um, fell in love with Tiki, and my dream was to open the first tropical cocktail bar in France. And basically, that's pretty much how it started. And uh, that's why we're here now. You know, when we met up today, um, one of the things I first commented on was, one, your T-shirt, which is the logo of your bar, Dirty Dick, which, with a, a big red pineapple and, like, these wild pineapple stalks and leaves coming out of it. And then also, you match it because you have, like, a little teardrop uh, tattoo. And I, and then you explained to me something about pineapples that I had actually never, I had never known. Can you kind of tell that story again? So uh, the. It's not the only reason we'll use it for our, our logo, uh, but being a you know tropical cocktail bar, we, we do use a lot of cocktails every day. Cocktails, sorry, pineapples uh, every day in what we do, but the pineapple is the symbol of hospitality. Back in the day, people would... Basically, if you had a pineapple in your house, you were either royal... At the beginning, you were royalty or a very well-off, distinguished family... And, and to offer a pineapple uh, was very hospitable. And that's kind of where it all comes from. Where this, and so the pineapple in, in our industry is the symbol of hospitality. So few people have the kind of perspective, I mean, few Americans have the kind of perspective as you do, Scott, in terms of like the, the food and wine scene here. When you were looking around and deciding on the concept of your bar and you saw that there were actually uh, no other tiki bars in, in Paris like what like kind of what what went through your mind and like what were you you know like what were you th how did you kind of wake up one morning and you go hey I'm gonna open up a tiki bar with <laughs> fruity cocktails in Pigalle uh, actually it was a little bit more complex than that I I, um, I, I got into co I became very passionate about cocktails and I think it was like 2005 I got into a cocktail competition I flew to New Zealand and I really became in, in blew away with what's going on uh, over there and that instead of just making beer that or whatever you can make really great homemade cocktails or you know fresh ingredients and stuff I just really became not obsessed but I really loved the whole cocktail world I came back to France in my bar I, I started doing a more intense cocktail program and I always worked at cocktail not cocktail bars sorry uh, like rock and roll dive bars or little neighborhood bars and I kind of would every place I would introduce my own cocktail card you know using fresh ingredients and stuff time went on I went in I was in Nevada and I went into uh, Frankie's Tiki Bar in Las Vegas right when it opened and that's where I really fell in love at first it was definitely instant love affair it was the what I saw, the art, the smells, the cocktails, everything about it, the music. And then I kind of went back. I read about the history, and it's all from Southern California. I'm from Southern California. And um, I just became very obsessed with, with the whole culture. And then being that I'm really into cocktails as well, I started making you know tiki cocktails, and I, that was pretty much, it was meant to be. So I wanted to you know, open up my tiki bar in France to keep Don the Beach Comer's dream alive and the whole keep tiki culture, keep it, keep it going, you know. It's been going since uh, 
1934, so it's the the longest things in, in the cocktail world, so it's, it's great to be a part of. That's where it kind of comes from. A very long answer. No, lo- love those long answers, yeah. And, you know, when we were talking at the, at the Havana Club the other evening, I was like, you know, I, I used to love that great uh, tiki bar in Beverly Hills, and you go, and you said, what did you say right away? You said, uh, Trader Vic's, uh, at, yeah, yeah, in the Beverly Hills Hotel. That's right. That's right. And that was my other that was my other reference for uh, a tiki bar. Now, um, speaking of the Havana Club, I think you do work a bit with the Havana Club. You're doing you're traveling with them. You're doing master classes. Tell us a little bit about that. So with Havana Club, it started maybe five years ago. There's a an international cocktail competition called the Havana Club Grand Prix. One person is uh, comes from represents each country. There's about 44 countries. And then it's done in Cuba. It's five days. Everyone's immersed in, you know, the food, the music, the culture, everything. It's, it's an amazing experience. I first started, you know, uh, I worked on the cocktail team there. I did a, we did a cocktail menu for a place called La Guarita in downtown Havana, Cuba, in old, old, uh, old Havana, where me and Andy Loudon and a few other people from the Havana club team we went went to the local markets and uh, the local produce tried different syrups this and that we did some trainings for the cantonarios there which that was a great experience and then when i ran into you they're they're redoing the havana club grand prix in 2018 so i'll be judging that with uh with karina and a few other people from paris to get that one person who's going to represent france is going to fly to to cuba uh, in 2018 and uh, all around, I mean, it's it's a great brand, it's a great rum, and um, yeah, I do I do work a lot with them here and there. Well, as you were explaining to me too, it sounds like there's you know when you're a, a master mix, mixologist like yourself, you know. Well, okay, so you're, you know, mixologist, come on, um, you know, there, there seems to be a lot of opportunity to kind of host master classes, uh, maybe introduce people to the art, and also maybe do some judging. So, did you mention Plantation? Was that one of the other brands that you're working with? And, and how, like, how do those events shape up? Well, with Plantation, um, back when I was running a bar called UFO, which is an overcomp, that's uh, a rock and roll dive bar. It's still open. I was introduced to Plantation Rum, but not only that, uh, Alexander Gabriel, he also makes, it's from the Maison Ferrand, so it's in Grand Champagne Cognac. They make various different amazing cognacs. They make a Citadel Gin, which is a French gin. He makes because you can only make cognac a certain months out of the year. So when the stills weren't working, it's like, let's make, let's make a nice gin. They make a pot still gin. They make a triple, uh, a dry carousel, which is great, and then plantation rums. And I, you know, I immediately became really obsessed with these rums. I really liked the, a lot of the flavors, and started working with them more and more. Then when we when we opened up Dirty Dick, was our house pour. And as the years went by, we just did a, we just made a rum called OFTD with, with seven other, well, six other people besides myself from around the world who are in the either the tropical drinks scene or David Wondrich, which is a cocktail historian. He writes for Esquire and he has many books and stuff. He's a real cocktail geek. I mean, it, cocktail historian, he's, he's, he's a great guy. And we all came together and it took us about a year of secret tastings and stuff and we put out OFTD, 
which is an overproof um, overproof rum mixed with Barbados, uh, Jamaica, and uh, Guyanese rums. And besides that, yeah, we, we go around the world. We'll do master classes depending on where we're at for bartenders or other people. It's just informing people about rum, tiki, and all kind of other fun stuff. But, yeah, that's, that's, that's how the connection with Plantation. Now, is that an acronym for something, the name of your rum? Do, does it stand for something? On the bottle it says um, Old Fashioned Traditional Dark. It's kind of making a stab at people who were... Uh, V-O-S- V-O-S-O-P and things like that. But it actually means, oh, fuck, that's delicious, is, is what it really means. It's a true story, by the way. Oh, I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Well, and okay, so now let's take the conversation in a, in a divergent direction. I want to hear a little bit about your take on the food scene here. Now, you're also you're a, a, a master cocktailologist and a bar owner. Okay, I just made that one up. <laughs> it was it's the cider that that got to me, but um, but once you're you're also quite uh, you know a, a connoisseur of the food here, and we've both noticed you know a change in the restaurant scene in Paris. But you've got quite a perspective. You've got 19 and a half years. Tell us a little bit about what you think about you know the the changing food scene here. I, what I've noticed is. It, it, I, I kind of noticed it about the same time with when the, all the cocktail bars started opening. There was obviously ones before, but ECC was kind of the first one that kind of made the yeah experimental cocktail club called the Awakening, maybe. Um, then people started opening their their little cocktail bars, and at the same time, that goes along with uh, food. Young chefs, um, like young bartenders, using fresh ingredients specializing in certain regions and certain countries more natural or or whatever and i think with this this whole insurgence and and booming in cocktail bars and restaurants it's i think for the parisians to break into that scene it was hard at first but i think people to live here everything costs a lot of money and going to a lot of bistros i'd noticed since i've lived here the food was normally crap it's bought at Metro, which is like a, like a Costco we have in the States. They're not using fresh ingredients. A lot of stuff's frozen. And people were just used to it was the norm. And then when, when you could go out and get this beautiful meal from a certain region in Italy, for example, or in France with all fresh products that cost the same price, I think people were like, started, okay, well, if we're paying all this money, I like stuff that tastes good and that's fresh and I'm learning every time I'm trying new ingredients that I've never tried, new wines that I've never had before. Natural wines became really popular over the same time and I think people really give a shit about what they're putting into their bodies more now when they're paying so much money like you know they want something quality and and why not and we all should, we deserve it right? Oh, we did. We definitely do deserve the best. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, I don't have quite the perspective that you do. I mean, although I, I was here in the early '90s, but I really don't have much of. I remember the French Franks, but I don't really remember the bistro fair. But I, having written a lot about you know the restaurant scene in the last uh, seven years here, I've noticed this almost like a star system of the young French chefs. And what I've noticed too is that they seem to be gaining a lot of respect. I mean, you know, like some of the people who've been featured on the show, like a Matthew Peck or Cyril Lignac, you know, these guys are young Turks, you know, but they're already having phenomenal success with their with their restaurants. 
so do you have any kind of favorites? I mean, my favorite subject these days, and it's going to be the subject of a future show, is I just see way too many hamburgers in this town these days. But um, but I don't know. Do you have any favorites that you might want to that you might want to recommend? Or I, I know you were mentioning too that sometimes if you really want to indulge in a good uh, Michelin starred meal, the thing to do is maybe to travel outside of the city. Well, I'll start with that one first. Well, with my son, he's actually sitting right next to me. He just showed up. Since he was young, we, when we used to get away, like, we, for example, once we went to Tours, which is about an hour and 20 minutes drive from Paris, it's really fast. Uh, you're in the middle of the country. There's a, you're right on the Loire. We stayed actually in a, a treehouse, and it, we were in the middle of the vines, and it, we were at Vouvray. And then there was, you know, literally within a 20-minute drive, you had about six different one- to two Michelin-star restaurants. And you can go for lunch for, you know, 20, 20 euros for a lunch in one of these places. And even for the tasting dinner at, at night, it's 70 euros for a 12-plate tasting menu, which, yes, it's expensive, but it, in that type of realm, it's not that crazy expensive. So I, I really – that's where we – I really got into eating Michelin star food, but you know, even in Paris, it's, it's usually double the price. But I mean, you can get really great food. It obviously isn't Michelin star. That's just it's a fun thing to do to treat yourself every once in a while. But I mean, in, yeah, in Paris, there's really, really great food. Like one of my favorite bistros up in Montmartre is La Mascotte. They do like it, I think they've been open since the late 1800s. More seafood oriented, but white tablecloth you know mater d type place which is great um a new one that just opened i tried is le grand vert which is uh pali tokyo uh karina adam and josh they just opened which is all about sustainability natural wines they don't have actually have bottles for everything it's all bought in like the rum and all their spirits are bought in big plastic kegs you could say that are all recycled afterwards they're going for trying to use everything it's very sustainable i guess could be the word which is which is really awesome the food was great i tried there okay so now switching back to your entrepreneur's hat what kind of a future can we see because i know even when you were just telling me about how many pineapples you go through you go through like 40 to 50 pineapples a day at your bar in Pigalle. <laughs> you're seeing quite a quite a, a lot of success for your and rightly so since you're opening about four and a half years ago so what's 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 the future what's where's the next step you think the next step for dirty dick world domination for sure uh if, if I, I don't know if we touched on it, but what we do in Dirty Dick, it takes us anywhere from 8 to 10 hours a day to prep for one night service. Everything we do is homemade. Uh, we do about 13 different syrups. Uh, all our juices hand-pressed. We All our prep, batching, everything's done there in-house. All the garnishes are made with fresh products as well. So everything that we, we give to you guys is very, you know, it's from our heart. It takes us a long time to make it. So that's kind of what, what we do. Uh, it's all tiki orientated. I think we have about 30 drinks, about 10 or 12 classics. We can do anything off menu that we can do. We can do off menu, which is cool. And um, that's what we're doing for now. We're looking for another site now. I don't know. We can stay tuned where that's going to be. But even on Roof Row Show where we've opened, it, uh, Dirty Dick used to be a brothel. It opened in 1934. I bought it. It was still a brothel. Sex club type, titty bar type thing. So it was the whole neighborhood, uh, the red light districts, Pigal, um, you know, after World War II is where all the GIs used to go to get laid, get drunk, because they usually had a day or two. Uh, so this whole epoch has kind of died off. So 
all of these sex clubby type places, bar repute, I guess they call them in French, they kind of all died off and they all came, you know, around the same time they have a liquor license. So now on Rufro Show, where a glass open first, which is Josh and Karina and Adam's bar, it's their kind of late night bar. We open across the street from them. When we opened, the, the Cartier was still not great. Uh, since we've opened, there's six other cocktail bars on the street. There's two luxury hotels. ECC opened a hotel. La Pigal is there as well. Uh, so the whole place has really changed. It's a great night out. You can bar hop and go to a lot of great bars on that street, even down the street, and go for really great food. So you can really spend a whole evening there, uh, which is great. No, you're so right. Like in the last, just just ever since you opened, the whole place has just become completely gentrified and extremely trendy. I mean, like all the hipsters, that's the night out. That's where that's where you go. I mean, it's not seedy at all anymore. It, okay, last question, Scott. If I'm going to go into, this, no, this is going to be the hardest one for you. If I'm going to go into your bar and I want to order a signature cocktail, which one, which one do I get? I mean, the th- with us... Any bartender you're going to add, we were, we're really a family. We have a lot of people who've worked there since we've opened who haven't, who have never left. Every one of our bartenders is going to have their own signature cocktail. But on our menu, like I said, we have about 10 classics and all the rest of them are pretty much, I guess you could say signature, signature cocktails. We're going to change in another three weeks. We'll take about five drinks off. We'll do something that's seasonal, fruit juice wise, syrup wise. And then that's kind of how we change our, our menu change it a few times a year i mean there's just so many what we would first ask you know is what you don't like what you dislike what you're looking for and then we can kind of find it from there and if it's not on the menu which it probably would be uh we can do something off menu as well so kind of a complex answer but we'll, we'll definitely find what you're looking for for sure I knew exactly as soon as I posed you that question. I knew it was going to be the hardest one for you to answer because I mean you're the you're the the author of it. We're there to make you guys happy, so we're going to find what you like and what you're looking for. So, great, great, made to order. Hey, I want to thank you so much, um, you know, for this time and doing this interview at the Bombardier in the shadows of the Pantheon. So yeah, thank you so much, Scott. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Aloha. Thank you for listening to Paris Good Food and Wine. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine with me, your host, Paige Donner. If you'd like to learn more about French wine regions, French wines, and how they pair nicely with food, book your Perfect Pairings Food and Wine Seminar today. We take groups of 2 to 20 people. More information and instant booking is at parisfoodandwine.net.
All right. Well, hello, Stephen Clark. I mean, writer extraordinaire. <laughs> this, I know this is probably kind of one of the most atypical, but then also typical places to do an interview. We're here uh, with plenty of background noise at the upstairs of the opera Starbucks, uh, which tends to be kind of like a, a, a very easy meeting place, just a stone's throw from Opera Garnier. Uh, lots of people studying, lots of people chatting and talking and uh, very central. So you were kind enough to meet up here. Now, now we have plenty of things to talk about. You're a longtime resident. You've raised a couple of kids here. You are, though, originally an Englishman. And, well, why don't you, can you maybe just, you know, give us a few sentences of, like, how you got to Paris and started writing the A Day in the Life of, of Merde? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I came here about 20 years ago because I'd been offered a job with not much stress, not much money, but a lot of holiday, which is what I was looking for at the time. And um, after I'd been working in a French company for about 10 years and, re- and realized that I really knew France in terms of its everyday life and what ordinary French people put up with but from an English perspective then I started making notes for the book which eventually became a year in the mouth but it took me about 10 minutes 10 years not 10 minutes took me about 10 years to get right inside France because I didn't want to write a tourist book I wanted to know how people really live Uh, that's much more interesting to me than the sort of distant touristy view of uh, oh they all drink wine and, and you know wear Chanel uh, so lots of them do but not all of them you know you know on a previous conversation you gave me a sort of a cliff's notes of how you became successful with that book it's such a rich history do you mind just sharing that anecdote again no no it's great for me um, what I did was I wrote a year in the mad um, the, the story of um, an Englishman who can't speak any French and doesn't understand the French or any foreigners in general arriving in France and trying to settle in, uh, having spectacular uh, amounts of failure and uh, humiliation. And um, I wrote this book and was told sort of rather bluntly by publishers and agents that they didn't really want it. So I self-published it. This was in 2004. This was a long time ago. This was before... Amazon was self-publishing everything and you know I had to find a printer and get a friend to do the design and all that sort of stuff. So I printed up 200 copies, started selling them door to door in English language bookshops here in Paris and then word of mouth it just it just took off and suddenly became this sort of internet success. But this was before Facebook, before Twitter and all that. It just sort of took off and um, luckily for me, you know, it became a hit all over the world. But apparently people were interested in knowing what life in France is really like and having a bit of a laugh about it as well. That's such an inspiring, it's such an inspiring story. And I know you sort of put in one sentence that that elbow grease of going door to door and then also doing readings at some of the local, you know, English language bookshops and just all the effort you put in. But um, I picked up a, a copy again of your of the sequel to the book you just mentioned, which is Mared Happens. And for all of our Anglophone listeners who don't know what Mared means, it means shit. It means S-H-I-T in... Uh, in in French, but um, there's a passage that your the English protagonist of your series of books uh, says as he and his French girlfriend are touring the United States in this sequel, and it's uh, it's such a funny. Uh, well, actually, I wonder, I wonder if you could maybe read that to us. Uh, it's it's, a, it's such a funny little paragraph. 
Sure, yeah. Um, this right, So this is Mayad Happens. This is actually book three. Book two was called Mayad Actually, or in America, for some reason, they changed the title to In the Mayad for Love. This is book three, so he, yeah, he's traveling across America, and he, he's talking about, he, he thinks that Europeans have a kind of patronizing view of what Americans think about Europe and history in general. So he kind of lists this, this sort of cliched idea of what um, we Europeans think of the American simplistic view of history. So, it, you know, for the modern era, he, ta- he says, um, uh, most French people, especially the politicians, are sure that America views France like this. Jurassic period to 1940, an area of the planet devoted solely to the production of wine, cheese, prostitutes, and body odor. 1940 to the present, supposedly a friend, but in truth as reliable as the wedding guest who sleeps with the bride. In fact, though, Many Americans have an acute sense of history. For instance, they can tell you what happened in America on practically any day between 1775 and about 1790. That's that's such a funny passage. That is such a funny passage. I mean, and I think it kind of uh, it kind of sums up maybe that romantic notion of of maybe how we kind of still <laughs> view each other when we're not francophiles or francophones and maybe not anglophiles or, or anglophones. Now I know you're you're kind of still in the, the throes of writing a history book, and then you also have a French, the French version of your book about Edward VII that's just coming out. I think next week is that right? This week, yeah. It's uh, I wrote a book called Dirty Bertie, an English King Made in France, which is all about how Edward VII, Victoria's son, enjoyed himself a hell of a lot in France in the 19th century. And he actually had an apartment opposite where we're sitting now, where he used to go and amuse uh, himself with friends of his that he'd picked up in theatres and cabarets. Um, but my uh, premise is that he put it all to good, serious diplomatic use by coming, by becoming Britain's, probably Britain's greatest ever diplomat. That's coming out this week in France um, with a very similar title, Édouard Sept, un roi anglais made in France cool because I know the English version came out a couple of years ago already yeah um, through about three or four years ago yeah it was called yeah dirty dirty yeah Thank you for listening to our October 2017 show of Paris, Good Food and Wine, Episode 30, Season 4. For information about where to find Scott's Dirty Dick Bar in the Pigalle District of Paris, please go to our website, parisfoodandwine.net, and click on blog. You can also refer to local food and wine at wordpress.com and find us on Twitter at Paris Food Wine and on Instagram at Page Food Wine. For information about Stephen Clark's upcoming stand up shows based on his trilogy of A Year in the Married books, you can find that info also on our website, parisfoodandwine.net, where we link to his official Facebook page. such 
something about the, the significance of bread. I mean, because of course, you know, we, we're talking about food and wine here on this show. And I think that some of the longtime residents here, uh, longtime expat residents like yourself, Stephen, have a, you know, you have a very interesting perspective on the culture of food and wine here, especially when you're very much into the culture of food and wine as you are. You, ha you mentioned something uh, to me about the significance of bread, the significance that the role of bread played in the revolution, in the French Revolution. I wonder if you could explain that a little bit more. Um, sure, yeah. I mean, I've always thought that bread has a very prominent role in, to play in France. It's not necessarily good bread. You know, baguettes is not fantastically good bread, really. It only stays fresh for about half an hour. But um, it's very important, like, you know, and it's a kind of currency because when you, you know, when you go to a restaurant, you can get as much bread as you want. You know, the restaurant delivers it like tap water on your table and you just help yourself and you get refills and everything. It's a, it's a very important part, essential part of life. It has to be there. And I've been writing my take on the French Revolution and I realized that the revolution in many ways was caused by the rising price of bread. Now, that's been said a lot of times before, but what I didn't realize was how many riots there were caused by bread shortages, flour shortages, bad grain harvests, also just the threat of a, a, a grain harvest and rumors, fake news about how the king was storing bread for his own use or speculating on the bread market. It goes way beyond what I'd heard of before. And um, I found out that when in October 1789, uh, a mob went out from France, from Paris, most of them women. They went out to Versailles and they brought the royal family into the center of Paris so they could be there like with the people and they could also keep, keep an eye on Marie Antoinette's um, shopping habits and everything. They brought them into Paris. As they brought them in, in the procession, there was a carriage with the royal family in it and behind them, a whole procession of wagon loads of bread. So they came back from Versailles with a kind of double trophy, the royal family and bread. And it was essential to Parisians to have both of those in Paris because they were both at the core of French society. So, you know, it's amazing how important bread was at that time. And of course, the thing, one of the things that toppled Marie Antoinette and sent her to the guillotine was this fake news that she had said that when poor people didn't have enough bread, you know, let them eat cake. Why don't they eat cake? Uh, a really bad joke. She didn't say it at all. It was actually in a book decades before. It was an old joke, but it was attributed to her because she was so unpopular. And it uh, helped to make her a hate figure. You know, this joke about bread. bread. Bread really has been at the heart of French culture for a long time. You know, it's hard to, to imagine. I, I had heard that before, that she actually wasn't the one who had said, let, you know, let them eat cake. And, of course, that refers, at, you know, as you explained, too, a moment ago, to the brioche. Yeah. Brioche, which is um, a kind of bread with extra milk and egg. It's kind of luxury bread. So for someone, if you say, oh, the poor people haven't got enough bread, and you say, well, why don't they eat this luxury version? It's a, it's a really cruel joke to make. I mean, it's not surprising it turned her into hate a figure of hate, but of course, uh, you know, it was fake news. Fake news is nothing new. You know, fake news has been going around since the 18th century in France anyway. I'm sure in America too, and perhaps England as well. Yeah, you know, and I think I really appreciate that slice of history, if you will, uh, pun intended, that you just shared because 
I think it's often difficult for us to really realize, you know, when people are on the brink of starvation or when, they're at, when they've been suffering under starvation for, you know, days, weeks, you know, even months on end, that's going to really foment <laughs> some, some repercussions that, you know, d definitely. Now, what about today? I mean, so when you, you kind of contrasted those two periods of history in France, uh, you know, very, very visually in the sense that, you know, you mentioned that today bread is served like water, like tap water. It's, yeah, it's like tap water, but like tap water, it has to be there. So it still has the same symbolic importance now as it did during the revolution. I mean, if, it, if you go to a restaurant and there's no bread, you know, you could cause a riot. You know, you'd, uh, you know if business people go, to, go out for lunch, as a lot of them do in the cafes, and there's no bread, they wouldn't understand. You know, where's the bread? It would be like a miniature crisis in their lives. They might change restaurant. It has a really deep-seated psychological importance. Very interesting, yeah. You know, I was trying to, can you illuminate a little bit this culture of uh, restaurant tickets? Because I was trying to explain to some of my relatives the other day about how a lot of French people who have a salary are paid part of their salary in restaurant tickets. Uh, can you explain that a little bit to us? Yeah, but one of the good reasons to come and work in France is that your employer subsidizes your midday meal and your transport. So they will pay half of your monthly travel pass and they will also pay, either they give you lunch tickets up to a value, I don't know what it is these days, I haven't worked in a, com in a company for years, but it's, it's about eight euros, I think, uh, per day, per lunch. Or they provide a canteen, which is also subsidized, one or the other. If the company is too small to have a canteen, they give lunch tickets. Um, it's just a French law. You know, the, the French demonstrate a lot, but that's mainly because they don't realize how lucky they are and how good the employment laws are. Or maybe it's also because they want to keep all the good employment laws. They don't want to lose them. It's, um, it really is a good place to work. And one of the reasons why it's so good is that the, your employer treats you to lunch. You know, I have a couple of acquaintances who have, you know, restaurants that have turned into the canteens of some of these smaller companies. So while they're not the actual official canteen, all the workers will come to that their particular restaurant three, four times a week. And I've realized that once you get a couple of company clients like that, hey, your restaurant or your lunchroom is pretty much made. Yeah, yeah. I always tell people that um, who come to Paris just to visit, if they want to go out for a good lunch, a good cheap lunch, go to a, an office area. Because at lunchtime, the cafes there have to maintain a really high standard every day of the week. They have to get the office workers in there every day and keep them coming back. So your lunch will be good and fairly cheap. Uh, service will be a bit brisk, obviously, because, you know, the waiters and waitresses have to have a quick turnover. But uh, it'll be well worth the experience. They're the best places to eat. Lunchtime office areas. Now that's a really great tip. I haven't heard that tip before, but it makes perfect logical sense. I suppose in here and in and around Opera would be one of the areas. Uh, opera, yeah, I mean, it's also a tourist area, so you'd have to be careful not to go to a tourist area. But if you, you know, if you go to, uh, say, the 9th arrondissement, there are a lot of offices there in parts of the Marais, which aren't too touristy, where there are offices, like up in the Rue Beaubourg, around there, there are lots of sort of trendy businesses, so you get lots of trendy cafes, you know. Just go to an area where you can see people, sort of smartly dressed people sitting down at lunchtime, and you'll probably have a good lunch. 
Excellent tip. Excellent tip. Now, what are some food things and wine things that, Stephen, if you had to leave France for any extended amount of time that you would miss the most? Uh, oh, yes. Uh, goat's cheese salad. The, uh, it's called Chèvre Chaud. You get um, a slice of goat's cheese toasted onto bread, sometimes with honey, but I don't really need the honey. On top of just a very simple salad of um, green lettuce leaves with maybe some walnuts, very tasty. And if it's freshly done, really, you know, really good, typically French meal that you can get fairly cheaply in almost every cafe. It's how I judge a cafe: is I try the chèvre chaud, and if it's any good and if it's freshly done, I'll go back there. If it's been like pre-prepared and microwaved, I won't go back there. Gotcha. That's one of my favorites too, especially when that the Slices of bread are, are toasted just so and yeah, drizzled. Very nice with that crispy uh, chevre goat cheese on top. You know, I was wondering, because since you have a perspective of a good 20 years or more, you know, I, I've noticed a lot of changes here in Paris, just even in the last several years, um, namely the proliferation. I, I'm sure it's just a trend, but I see hamburgers and hot dogs absolutely everywhere to the point where even as an American it's like I've, I've kind of like I want to scream enough already but what about you what are some of the trends you've seen in the last 20 years like the things that have come and gone well definitely the the burgers almost every cafe now has its burger menu which they never used to uh, actually it's funny because I've got a, a stage show which is on now and again in Paris called, uh, which is based on one of my books called The Merde Factor and in that, the whole one of the one of the sort of plot lines is this whole explosion of burgers in ordinary cafes, and uh, uh, Paul West, the hero, trying to tell his boss, you know, um, about this. And his boss is French, so he doesn't really understand. Um, burgers is one thing. Obviously, sort of vegetarians now can eat uh, without sort of trawling through the menu and desperately saying, can you please take this ingredient or that ingredient out of this salad? There's a lot more vegetarian stuff now. I still wouldn't recommend using the word vegetarian in an ordinary cafe because you'll cause panic. But if you look at the menu in most French cafes now, if you're vegetarian, you can get something good. And there are loads of veggie restaurants and sort of organic sort of stuff. And there's loads of smoothies and things like that. And a lot of American stuff has come here, bagels and stuff. Paris has become fairly Americanized. But what I like the most is that there are a load of trendy new cafes and restaurants, but a lot of them are really fundamentally French. They might have a slightly sort of funkier new menu. They might serve a craft beer or two and these sort of modern uh, vin naturel, called natural wines, which are kind of fairly earthy, uh, not very refined, sort of often organic wines. They might do that, but the furniture will be the same as it always has been in a French cafe. The menu will be fundamentally the same, and it'll be the same principle of sort of really professional, but in this case, young waiters and waitresses, and a real professional cook in there, in the kitchen, preparing freshly cooked, pretty, you know, French food. And you you know, you get a couple of vegetarian things on there. You might get something crazy like a ceviche or something on the menu as well. But it still feels really Parisian. Paris is still proud of itself and still very alive in terms of food and, and restaurants. Well, that's heartening because uh, in the last uh, year when I started to see hamburgers even at the bakeries at lunchtime, I've thought, oh my goodness, okay, this is, this is a little bit over the top but um no that's 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 heartening to hear I, and i have to i have to agree with you i mean i i even heard of a group that's 
Frenchified hamburgers, where it's like you know hamburgers with foie gras and, and things and things like that. Now you you mentioned the Van Naturel. What kinds of wines are there? Any wine regions that you're particularly fond of, Stephen? Well, I'm not a great wine connoisseur. I'm more of a beer man, you see, because I've noticed that my books sell better in countries that drink beer. Uh, I don't know why. You know, Germany, England, Czech Republic. Uh, Poland, places like that, America, which is half beer, half wine, you know, Australia, again, half beer, half wine. But my, my books do especially well in beer countries. So, and I'm a very, you know, beer person. I'm really into English beer and these, and craft beers, you know, French craft beers as well, or French old school, you know, beers. I love going up to the north of uh, France, to Lille and around there where, the, where every town has its own beer and everything. I love that. But in terms of wine, I'm a bit of um, an ignoramus, and I just like these sort of very sunny, dark, uh, almost Italian wines in, from the south of France. Because I spent a year when I was a student in Perpignan, right down in the southwest. And so I was going to these little wine shops with wooden barrels and filling up litre bottles of them. And the wine just comes straight down out of the Pyrenees, out of the Corbière. And so I love that sort of, the kind of stuff that, um, you know, sort of, goat farmers drink up in the, the mountains of the southwest of France. It probably rots your insides, but, but it, it's a very nostalgic taste for me. That's, that, well, talk about nostalgia, that really brings back a whole different era where you could actually go to a wine shop and fill up from the, from the yeah. barrel. Oh, it was very, yeah, these, these wine shops they had down in Perpignan, you could, either you could get the local wines and they were, they were kind of listed according to how alcoholic they were. You know, you like 11, 12, 13... Actually, they were quite low. Some of them were sort of 10 and 9, really weak stuff, but probably watered down. And you could also get the, the local fortified wines, which I still love at aperitif time, you know, uh, Muscat de Rivesalt, things like that, which is these sort of golden fortified wine, a bit stronger than uh, ordinary wine. Drink it chilled, sort of aperitif time, before, you know, um, early evening. Again, really great, very tasty. And one of these eternally French things that have been around forever. And so when you're talking the fortified wines, it's kind of like a port then? Not quite as strong as port, but that kind of thing, yeah. The, the French do wines that are a bit less strong than, the, than Portuguese, you know, port or Spanish sherry. It's um, a kind of light version of that, but, you know, and chilled, really tangy taste. You just drink it in a small glass with some olives, you know, great aperitif. Very nice. Now, well, before we wrap up, because, I mean, you've had your you know, fountain of, uh, of great insight. I wanted to ask you uh, if you could just elaborate a little bit on that stand-up show that you do about... Uh, yeah. It's not actually me. It's, it's some actors who, who do a kind of stand-up show called The Mad Factor. We've done it four times in Paris. We'll probably be doing it again. Um, it's a show I've adapted from one of my novels called The Mad Factor, where it's the same hero, Paul West... Uh, trying to survive in Paris and it's an actor, an English actor who comes over from London actually, a stand-up comedian and he plays Paul West and then he interacts, uh, he talks to the audience a bit, sort of rapping about life in France if you're English and he also interacts with an actress who plays lots of other characters including male characters, she does loads of accents, it's really funny and then there's a live musician there, a French musician who kind of, he makes musical jokes while they're talking and gets in the way sometimes and everything, it's just sort of hour and a half of uh, messing around on stage to a sort of mad theme because you have to you have to understand that it mad means shit but in france it's a very rich word it can also be a good thing mad is what actors say to each other before they go on stage like break a leg and 
it's it's very it's it's a word that the French use absolutely all the time, and it can if you tread in it with I can't remember which foot it is, but if you tread it in with one of your feet, it, it brings you luck. Uh, I can't remember which one it is, so you know probably brings me bad luck with both feet. I'll remember that the next time I'm picking up after my talk. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, and um, details of uh, when those next performances are will be up on the website along uh, with the information about this podcast. So thank you so much again, Stephen, for coming out today. All right. Thanks a lot. Until next time, feel free to write us with any tips, suggestions, and questions. Our contact information is on the blog, localfoodandwine.wordpress.com, and also on parisfoodandwine.net. If you'd like to learn more about French wine regions, French wines, and how they pair nicely with food, book your Perfect Pairings Food and Wine Seminar today. We take groups of 2 to 20 people. More information and instant booking is at parisfoodandwine.net. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Paris Good Food and Wine. A big thank you to all who helped make this show possible and especially a grand merci beaucoup from me, your host and producer, Paige Donner. You can find this and past episodes of Paris Good Food and Wine on iTunes. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Paris Food Wine and like us on Facebook at Paris Food and Wine.